Hello, thank you so much for listening to Crisis of Faith with Joe and Drew. My name is Drew. Here in just a few moments, I'm going to be joined by my good friend Joe and our good friend since the early days of the podcast, Tommy Double O's, Thomas J. Ord. Uh, he's got a new book out called Open and Relational Theology. You got to get your hands on it. Our name is on the back of it. He let us actually write a one-word review for it. So Crisis of Faith with Joe and Drew is actually on the back of this book. You got to go to Amazon.com and get yourself a copy of it. But first, I want to roll out a little jingle for you, and then you got to hear this interview where we talk about open and relational theology. There is some crazy—if those sound like words that don't interest you very much and your eyes are just glazing over, stick around for just a second because— I really think this interview and this book and this conversation has some really, really great responses, maybe even answers to some of the biggest questions that people experience whenever they begin to get, have crises in their faith. But here's a little jingle followed by a wonderful interview with Thomas J. Ord. Preacher, is it true that God is the same no matter what? Except when he gets sad Or really, really mad Or says I'll be back soon Or maybe not Preacher, the God I used to serve Doesn't make a lot of sense to me So I got myself a jacket of tweed As I set my mind free With some open and relational theology It's pretty exciting. We've been at this almost a year. Uh, I think this will be episode 50. Does that seem right? Yeah. Really? When this oh. comes out, episode 50. And you, Tom, are the first, second time guest. First return guest on the Crisis awesome. of Faith podcast. <laughs> yeah, the number one repeat uh, offender. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. That's an honor and a privilege. <laughs> so you're here. Last time you were here, you were talking about your book, God Can't. Um and now you've written a new like this is why you're a repeat guest because you just put out books every six months or so <laughs> so we gotta talk to you again um so now we're, we're talking about your book open and relational theology and introduction to life-changing ideas um, which is a, a great book really cool because um well i'll let you tell us in a minute what open open and relational theology is but you know it's a it's the sort of thing that gets talked about in academic conferences at the American Academy of Religion and people with their tweed jackets and stuff, <laughs> you know, stand around. Uh, but you write about it in a way that's, that's really clear and really um, accessible to a lot of people. You even have these cool, like at the end of every chapter, um, there are some questions that you can use if you're studying this with a small group or something and also a qr code that you can scan at the end of every chapter and it takes you to like a youtube video where tom explains you know further stuff in in various settings so really neat um just a an excellent like resource for somebody jumping in to open and relational theology but the question is why would anybody like what is open and relational theology and why should anybody care about it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, good question. Uh, open relational theology is a general way of thinking about God that goes against what I in the book call conventional theology. Some of the standard ideas people have been told or they've been taught in Sunday school or they just kind of picked up in the culture. 
um, things like um, God is outside of time and God can't be affected by anything that goes on in the world. Open relational theology rejects that view and says God experiences time like we do and is really influenced by what we do, can feel our pain, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's a, it's a response to what I'm calling in the book, the conventional God. Some people might call it the classical God or the traditional God, whatever. I mean, it's kind of a hodgepodge of attributes in that conventional God, but open relational theology offers another alternative. Is this is something that you made up or like where, where do you exist in the tradition? Yeah, well, um, the title open relational theology is actually is something I made up. So um, <laughs> about 20 years ago, I wanted to bring together some more progressive voices that oftentimes use the label process theology and some more evangelical mainline voices that called themselves open theists. I wanted to bring them together under a big umbrella because they share so much in common about their intuitions about who God is. And so I just used that label open and relational to describe the big umbrella under which uh, those two camps exist, as well as lots of other people who don't, you know, designate any particular label. So, all right, uh, there's lots of stuff in this book that I think is worth talking about, and maybe we'll get to it. But here's what I really want to do today, Tom. Okay. Somewhere at the end of the book, you... I mean, it's almost like a throwaway line. You're like, I, I, I'm not really going to tell you this story, but you say that you grew up Christian, right? And then that at some point in your life, you became an atheist. Mm -hmm. And then you went through a phase that was something like a deist before you really settled on uh, this open and relational understanding. I just want to hear your story. I think, oh, oh, uh, I'd be happy I think to that's tell interesting. Uh, yeah, I grew up in a fairly traditional uh, evangelical family. You know, I went to church several times a week, gave my life to Jesus many times as a kid. Uh, my parents, you know, were like taught Sunday school classes, were on the church board. The church was a really central part of our family life. And um, I, in my high school and college uh, years, became one of these fanatical evangelists, the kind of person who bugs you on the <laughs> sidewalk or, you know, starts yeah. up a conversation on the plane about Jesus. That was, that's what I did. I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, and, and I really went gung-ho thinking that, look, this life doesn't really matter that much. What really matters is the next life. Um, and then the final year of my college career, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And for the first time, I read some really smart people who were agnostic, atheists, people from other religious traditions, and um, kind of threw me for a loop. You know, the reasons I had for thinking that there was a God um, didn't make a lot of sense to me anymore. And, you know, as you can imagine, people who are evangelists, they think they've got the answers. They study really hard. They're ready for any kind of question people throw at them, you know, and most people don't take theology very seriously. So if you study for a while, you can out argue most people, at least in your own mind, you can out argue them. <laughs> but these guys and these, and they were all men, these guys who I read who were atheists, agnostics, they were super smart. 
and they had good responses for my, you know, usual uh, uh, answers. Who and, who were you? This is like pre Richard Dawkins and yeah, this would be pre Richard right? Dawkins. Yeah, uh, let's see who were some of the voices. It was a the the book that we used for the course was a collection of short essays, so there wasn't like one particular person. But at that time, probably the most famous atheist was Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell, yeah. Um, and I read uh, his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, um, and other books as well. Um, but for me, it was an intellectual thing. You know, yeah. like it, the church, people in the church had been pretty good to me. I wasn't like rebelling against my youth pastor or rebelling against my parents or something. It was... It was really the questions of, you know, what's the meaning of life? Uh, is there a purpose to things? Why? What evidence is there for a God? Those kind of really basic, big questions that a lot of people ask. And and I, I guess I had asked them somewhat previous to that, but I'd never been challenged by really smart atheists and agnostics. Yeah, I think uh, there's a. Um... Joe and I seem to have experienced something somewhat similar. I think in the, the Appalachian tradition we were raised, I, I don't know, I was always, maybe this is true in every church tradition, every, every church circle. Anyone who doesn't believe what we believe is honestly an idiot. Like <laughs> yeah, right. every, everyone who believes differently than us is stupid. Yeah. Um, and then we go to college and, or we, we start to meet people who, I, I wrote a little essay not long ago about one of my first experiences like this whenever I had a, a I think it was a physics class. It was physics or geology or some science class. And I had a, a professor um, that was just the first true atheist I had met who was really brilliant and open and knew my faith better than I knew my faith. <laughs> and, you know, kind of picked some things apart in a way that I just hadn't experienced before. And it was like I was all of this, all, all of the um, the work that was done to convince me that everybody is is dumb if they don't believe what we believe made the house of cards come down so much faster. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, wait a second. These people are not idiots. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, they actually know every they everything that I had to throw at him, he already knew it um, and had an answer for it. And, you know, I, I think there's just more and more exposure for um, every young kid coming up in church. And, and I think that's true. Yeah. yeah that that you know, information for me, is a lot more readily available. Yeah. I hadn't for seen me, that the, movie. The, oh, okay. sorry. No, go, go ahead, for Tom. it. I was just gonna say, I hadn't, I, I haven't seen the movie God's not dead, but I've seen the uh, previews for it. And I just think like as a college professor who interacts with 20 year olds, <laughs> just the idea that like any of them debates their philosophy professor <laughs> successfully is just yeah. kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, probably the biggest card, maybe the card's not the right word, the, the rug that was pulled out from underneath me and made things really start coming down quick was actually not engaging atheists um, that came at the end of my college career, but it was earlier in my college career when I took a course on scripture and realized that the Bible had errors. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would 
two years of Greek. So I was reading the, you know, the Greek manuscripts. I had the scriptures there. And all of a sudden, like, I just couldn't deny that there was tensions, apparent contradictions. And, um, you know, prior to that, I was one of these people who walked around with the Bible. I can trust this no matter what. It's fell from heaven. It's the inerrant word of God. Therefore, all my Mormon friends are idiots because they've got the Book of Mormon. I've got the true Bible, you know. Mm -hmm. And then taking that course and, and being honest with what I was actually reading, that placed some real questions in my mind about my, my, the certainty I had. And that then, when I read other smart people, I, I had to, for the sake of intellectual honesty, give up uh, my belief in God. So how did you come back from that? How, I mean, you're, you're not an atheist today. No. <laughs> yeah, um, I came back from that because, again, it wasn't a rebellion thing for me. It was intellectual quest, and I didn't give up that quest. I kept at it. Um, there were two big themes that brought me back to thinking it was more plausible than not that there is a God. I wasn't certain there was a God. I'm still not certain there's a God, but I thought it was more plausible than not. One was my search for meaning. I, I realized that I couldn't say there was ultimate meaning without some kind of foundation or ground for ultimate meaning that most people use the word God for. So, I mean, just saying the ground of meaning sounds kind of abstract probably to some people, but that's kind of the, the entryway into a, a, a fuller theology. And the other one was um, I had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person and that somehow love was the right way to live and everybody ought to love. And I realized I couldn't have an ultimate ground for those intuitions if there wasn't something like a source of love that, again, people oftentimes call God. And so those two kind of things were at the center of my return to belief that there was a God. And it wasn't like all the rest of the theology kind of fell into place. It took me years and decades for things to kind of slowly get put back together. In fact, I remember... I had come to this position for, you know, the ultimate meaning and love kind of idea by the end of my college career. And then I was going out to be a youth pastor. And uh, I went to this church to interview for a job. And this pastor asked me about my Christology. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, I believe there's a God of love. I think Jesus is pretty cool, but that's about it. <laughs> Did you get the job? No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> and in future interviews, I was a little more wily about how I answered. <laughs> but uh, that's funny. I have, um, you know, as as I have shifted in my in my faith, um, I have also gone to sort of more and more progressive churches in, to work. Um, but I find myself like. I'll say things now, like, I don't really believe in God and, <laughs> and people at my church, like, just don't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, it. <laughs> yeah. You've, I, I think you've talked about it on the podcast before, and I've, I've experienced the same thing as, as a preacher. Like you can't, people just think you're being humble or they think that you're, 
you're illustrating something or you're trying to show some level of wisdom whenever you're yeah. like, I really, I don't know, guys, I don't know today. I don't think so. You're like, oh, he's showing us his doubts. Like, no, it's mostly doubts. Like it's not, I'm not showing you something I conquered last week. Yeah. <laughs> I remember in that first church as a youth, when I finally got a job, um, I felt this really big tension and my wife and I talked about it a lot because even though I'd come back to believe there was a God, given the grounds that I've shared about, um, we both knew that the majority of the people in the church thought I believed X, Y, and Z doctrines, which I didn't believe. Yeah. And, and, I, and we were like wrestling with how could we, with integrity, stay here living this kind of, it seemed kind of duplicitous, you know, they think we believe X, Y, Z, we really actually believe X and not that other stuff. Um, so I wrote a letter to one of my college professors asking advice. And he gave me a two pieces of advice. One was good, one was not so good. Uh, the good one was this, that he said, maybe you should think about this in terms of how you're going to help the people in the church not necessarily embrace every view you have, but help them work through their views and have some kind of good reasoning for that. And so he kind of shifted the focus on me and what I believe into onto what the people where the people were at and how I might be able to help them. The second thing he gave me that I didn't think was good advice, he said, don't tell any of this to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I understand why he said that, but uh, I, yeah. yeah, I didn't think that was good advice. <laughs> yeah. There's something to that, like the, the, that big question there, just the, that's always been my desire as a, as a preacher and pastor, when I held those titles was always just like, I'm not interested in teaching you what to believe. I'm interested in helping you discover what you believe and yeah. using it to make the world a better place and to be, right. become a better version of, you know, what you, what you aspire to be. Because I, my, my belief is still that most people like want to be good to other people. I and so right. faith in my experience has been an opportunity to help people get better at being helpful to people <laughs> like and really that's what you guys are doing with this podcast right i mean you're helping people to think through what they believe you're not trying to force all kinds of ideas you have to believe like again those doctrines yeah, there's a very it's, stringent christian oh, way that is true that, there are a few things <laughs> that are non-negotiable at this point we we thought we had we thought we would just be fine with anything and then we discovered nope there's a few things that i are can't remember what they are but i know we have some points of dogma <laughs> Well, um, had there been podcasts back when I, I know was number one, <laughs> I, oh. I know what number one is. What's number one? Number one is don't be a dick. Oh, don't be a dick. That's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there is actually, I love it. We actually wrote up like four or five things and we're like, yeah. all right, whatever you're going to do though, that one, you can't cross that line. Um, but anyway, I was just, I was just kind of getting at just the, the weird sort of church leadership ethics of yeah. saying, okay, that's my goal. My goal is just to help people discover what they're believing or, or what they believe and what helps them become a better person. And, but the, the ethical dilemma is that by and large, that is not what evangelicalism seeks to do. Right. Like my, my thought about that, you know, as you, you as a youth pastor at this church, and that's excellent advice that you could actually do that and use that, that bit of advice to reconcile what you're going to do. I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do while I'm here. 
is that what the pastor of that church wanted you to do? Probably not. Like, no. the, that's the, no. is that what evangelicalism wants their pastors to do? No, they no. want us to create dogma. They want us, there is a desire for, and this isn't among all evangelicals. I just think by and large, it exists in much the same way that I hate throwing this word around because I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair in some ways, but it exists like a cult where it's kind of like, well, no, we want to know these are the things that people have to believe without asking any questions. And if they start to question those things, then they're no longer us. We, yeah. we kick them out. Um, and, and that's the, I don't know, that's the ethical dilemma of my life. That's the ethical dilemma of starting this podcast was all about like, well, that's what I want to do, but it doesn't seem to be what it, what people assume you mean when you say you're an evangelical or when you say you're a pastor or a preacher, it, it seems like a, seems like it's kind of an unfair deal to both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. So the, the God that you came back to Tom is a, a good bit different, like from what you call the conventional God. Uh, in fact, in the book, you say that the conventional God is, you use the word jerk, but say that you wish you, you might want to use a different word if it were, a, you know, if it were an R rated book instead of a PG rated book. Um, what, so what, what is the conventional God all about and, and why is he a jerk or whatever yeah. other words so you want to use? Let, I'll, I'll give you a five or six characteristics of the conventional God. And let me say up front that some of these are going to sound weird to a lot of your listeners because these are ideas that uh, are common amongst academic thinkers, major thinkers in history like Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, John Calvin. And if you go even to a conservative evangelical church, you probably won't hear at least some of this stuff. But if you dug down into the theology, you would, it would uh, you know, jump up quickly. Yeah. So one of them is that uh, the conventional God isn't affected by what we do. Nothing we do pleases or displeases this God. This God is totally unmoved, or the classic word is impassable. I like to say non-relational. This conventional God also exists outside of time and knows the future and the past all at once, which means that everything that God knows with certainty in the future, which is all things that are knowable, are decided, determined, fixed, settled. And that's really hard to reconcile with the idea that we have real free choices moment by moment. <clears throat> the conventional God is a God who may or may not love you because this God chooses whether to love. This God doesn't have a nature of love that requires love. This God could say, you know what? I, I, I like Joe, but Drew, nope, tough luck. I hate you. That makes sense. Uh, <laughs> makes a lot of sense to you. Uh, the God of the conventional God is angry. This is Jonathan Edwards' God, who's the, you know, we're sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, and once I say that, I should note that the conventional God, some forms of it are really uh, irrational. So people will sometimes walk around saying, well, God isn't influenced by what we do. God is unchanging, unmoved. And then the next moment they'll say, God's really pissed at you for sinning, <laughs> which yeah, you right. can't have both those. Um, and some theologies will fix that and eliminate one or the other, but yeah. lots of others just sort of leave them there and it's, it becomes difficult to fathom. 
Um, so those are just, I guess I gave you four there, yeah. but those are kind of some of the common ones that uh, people will, will embrace. And the open and relational God is different. The open and relational God is really affected by what we do. Experiences time. The open and relational God must love you and me because that's God's very nature. God didn't even choose to have that nature. It just is the case everlastingly. The, uh, the open and relational God isn't out to punish and kick people's butts, but uh, there are natural negative consequences for sin, and God wants us to avoid the natural negative consequences. But this isn't the God who's going to send people to hell for eternity or eternal conscious torment for eternity. Um, so that's a really basic response. There's a lot of details, but gives you an overview. So, okay. Yeah. So like the, the people that I grew up with, let's say in my Southern Baptist church, I mean, the angry God is there, right? The angry God is lurking behind the atonement theology and hell and stuff, but nobody would describe God as angry, right? They would say God is loving, kind. Also, he'll send you to hell, but it's very sweet. <laughs> and he likes us and not those Muslims. <laughs> right. Or yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um but so it like it, on some level it sounds like just the words that are coming out of your mouth. Okay, fine. Like everybody, yeah, would yeah. agree with that. Um but it is kind of radical. I mean, if you're saying God is affected by us, by what we do, by decisions that we make. That means God is changing all the time, right? This, that we're actually, sh doesn't the Bible say that God doesn't change? What do you do with that? Yeah, the Bible says God doesn't change in some places and says God does change in others. And so what open relational thinkers do is say that God's experience changes moment by moment in real relationship, but God's nature is unchanging. So that's steadfast and fixed. Uh, so that's how I think it's a really excellent way to think about uh, God, because you can then affirm that this relational love is giving and receiving. God's in this dynamic interaction with us and creation. And yet you can also be assured that God isn't going to fly off the handle, get pissed and destroy half the earth because God gets mad. No, God's nature of love is going to prevent God from doing anything that's evil, destructive, etc. And I think, oh, go ahead. No, you're, you're fine. Go, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in in a well, second. <laughs> there was one other attribute that I should have said when I mentioned earlier about the conventional God that will sound weird to a lot of people. The conventional God is either controlling everything or it is at least in control. I mean, if you're like me, you grew up in churches in which people would talk about bad things in the world. They didn't like the president. They're going through some kind of difficulty in their family. Someone has cancer and things don't turn out the way they want. And they'll say, well, I don't know, but thank God, God is in control. And open and relational folks don't usually use that phrase because we think there's real freedom in relation with God. God doesn't control everything. Most of us think God can't control anything. And so that makes a lot of, we'll call it conventional believers, a little uneasy because they want that security and that certainty that God is uh, in control, even if they don't understand how. Yeah. Well, so um, 
you guys correct me if I'm missing something here, but I'm I'm hearing in this um, I'm hearing a very very fine line between um, what I what I think could be an a somewhat evolved atheism where you have like a God who changes over time with people is like, okay, well, what's the difference between that and just a mere construction of a God? So the, the fine line becomes this unchanging nature, this like, okay, so the God is always love. That's what makes God real. Um, but how that God interacts with the world and what kind of changes, does that make... Am I, am I making sense of a question here that I think we're like, for me, it is a very, very small step and a fine line and not a, not something I have a problem with. Just yeah. it's kind of like it's, it's really, really close to that line of like, well, God changes with people and with the world and evolves over time. Like it's kind of another way of saying, well, yeah, we think differently now about physics and all of that stuff, too. Mm-hmm. We think differently now about medicine than we did two is there actually a god involved in this or is it just a construct that evolves with us yeah yeah well open and relational thinkers are going to say there's really a god and you can go at this two kind of ways one is the way you kind of described there by maybe saying something like look uh, contemporary physics a lot of contemporary philosophy our contemporary life and, and understanding of history suggests a God who is moving through time moment by moment. And, uh, you know, that sounds like we're just sort of updating God based on our contemporary <laughs> culture or something. Yeah, yeah. Another way to go about it, though, that will sound very traditional is to say, well, what is the God in the Bible like? Is this God a God who's affected by us? Well, you bet. God's a real actor in scripture. God is sometimes frustrated by what people do. God gets angry. God is pleased. God is moving in covenants with people. And that sounds like a relational kind of God. So in some ways you might say, well, this is just a throwback to the God described in a lot of scripture. In doing that, you still have to do some interpretive moves because, yeah, sometimes God is described in scripture in ways that open and relational thinkers don't like. Sometimes God is uh, credited with evil by biblical authors. And I at least don't think God is credited rightly. So that there, I think some parts of scripture misunderstand God. But if we sort of take a big picture and asks and ask the question, is the God of the Bible an individual who has real experiences with creation, boy, it seems like even people who reject that view admit that's the general view of God in scripture. And that fits open a relational theology. So like there are lines, right? There, there are lines in scripture that say God doesn't change or God, uh, you know, there, there are lines in scripture that you with an open and relational view have to go, well, I interpret it this way or I reject, you know, I think that's a misattribution or something. Um, but you're at least saying that, right? You're admitting that. Right. Whereas somebody who, who holds to a con- the conventional God, as you've described it, um, will often say, they'll take those lines about God doesn't change or, you know, God does this or that. Uh, and they'll say that's scripture. And then they'll just ignore the fact that 
in fact, this God does change his mind all the time and does feel right. emotions and do, like is a is a person in the scripture. Yeah, that's a um, great way to put it. What really bugs the heck out of me is when someone will say to me, well, you're just interpreting the Bible a particular way, but I'm <laughs> reading the Bible as the plain text. And I just think, oh, give me a break. You know, I can give you lots of examples. Take, take the example of Jonah when he goes to Nineveh and he's delivering the message from the Lord that Jonah's going to be destroyed. I mean, Jonah, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. The king of Nineveh says, let's repent. Maybe God won't destroy us. Mm -hmm. And the book ends with God also repenting, having a change of mind. And I say to these people, okay, if you want to take the plain reading of scripture, this is an open and relational view right here in the Bible. What are you going to do with that? Yeah. I think that, I mean, how often is that the bottom line issue uh, whenever it comes to the most conventional ways of thinking uh, about things? How, how often is the answer like just coming to a better understanding of what the Bible actually is? Yeah. What you're actually reading whenever you read this, that even the the scriptures that, that suggest um, that God never changes nor casts a shifting shadow right? right the same yesterday today and forever like yep. okay well that is for one thing that might just be one person's opinion at one particular moment in time another thing it might be referring to certain character attributes and not necessarily to um an evolving interaction um exactly the world at large like they're they're always yeah it really resonates with me to, to hear you say like, that's just how you're interpreting. It was like, yeah, <laughs> that's what you do. I'll just interpret yeah. reading something that was not written to us like that. Yeah. <laughs> the bottom line is you're just reading a collection of books that, that the apostle Paul had no idea you'd ever read. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, you're reading my day. mail. You're, you're teaching my <laughs> yeah. mail on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes like the, when I'm working with my doctoral students, ask the question, what are the main metaphors about God that you use when you read the scriptures? If your main metaphor for God is that God is a rock or a fortress, then you're probably going to tend toward the conventional God who's in control, who won't be affected by anything whatsoever, because that's what a rock is like. Mm -hmm. But if you think God is primarily a loving parent or a loving friend or even a loving partner, spouse, you're probably going to come more toward open and relational side of things because that's the way we think about God. Both those things are in scripture. So what do you do with those now, in the open relational camp, we take all the rock and fortress stuff when we say, well, that refers to God's steadfast character. We can trust it. And then we take all the parenting, lover, friend stuff and say, well, that's a good illustration of God's moment by moment loving interaction or relationship with us. Hmm. Well, and I mean, that's they're both good, right? If right. you stop trying to make them like if you start trying to, to sort of sort out a logical system for them. And just think about, you know, forget God, think about a person. If you said Bill never changes, well, then <laughs> Bill's an asshole because right. sometimes like you, you have to be different in dealing with your banker than you are when you're dealing with your child who just skinned her knee, right? There's, you have to change in order to be a good person, yep. but you also don't want, like, you want to know what you're going to get when you talk to Bill. 
right? You don't yep. want to like somebody who's just a total like basket case every time you talk to them and you don't know what to expect. That's not good either. Um, and like, it's like when we talk about God, we have to f- forget what it means to just be like good. <laughs> yeah. A good person. Yep. It's interesting how this can play out in our politics. Like, you know, if you have, remember when they called Bill Clinton a flip-flopper a flip, <laughs> right. because like he had no background, he'd do whatever. Well, that sounds like, you know, what some people call the open relational God who's, you know, you can't trust him. He's evolving all the time. Whereas George Bush, now that guy had a spine. You could trust his word. He wasn't going to change, which, you know, that sounds bad if you're in a situation where you should change because the circumstances requirement. Yeah. So we both, we have, we know there's something right about being relational and also something right about being steadfast is putting them two together well that a lot of people have a hard time with. Yeah. So, uh, okay, you've said God, I mean, you talk about this God who's loving and everybody's like, Oh yeah, yeah. On board like that loving God. But then when you get into the nitty gritty of it, now you're talking about a God who changes. You've already said there's some things that God can't do. I mean, you wrote a whole book about that. Yep. Um, I think a third, you know, at least implied thing that we haven't mentioned yet is does God not know the future then? Yeah. This one gets kind of technical, but, um, it really comes down to the question of whether or not the future is fixed, settled and determined, or if it's open or dynamic. And um, the problem with thinking God knows with absolute certainty, everything that will ever occur in the future, and that God can't make a mistake, is that it sounds like the future is already fixed, settled and determined. And if that's the case, well, you know, we're not really free to choose other than what God already knows is going to happen. Our prayers asking God to do something different so that the future is different, they don't really matter. Um, So yeah, that question about foreknowledge is one that uh, makes open relational theology distinctive compared with conventional theology. Yeah, I I think... um... I think it was Greg Boyd who once put it something like uh, God knows everything that is knowable, right? Everything that there is to know. And the future is just not one of those things that's knowable because it's not, it's not here. It doesn't exist. Yeah. A lot of open theists will say it this way. God knows everything that happened in the past, everything that's happening in the present and all the possibilities for the future. But since Hmm. the future hasn't yet become actual, God can't know what is actual. God just knows all the possibilities. So God knows everything that's knowable. God is omniscient, to use that classic word. It's just the the data that's part of God's omniscience in an open relational view is different than the data that's a part of God's omniscience in the conventional theology. Is there a is there a limit on that um, from from your perspective? Like, um, let's just say the, the ultimate reconciliation of all things a is there a limit to like god doesn't exactly know how it's going to get to point omega (laughs) point z i think that Um, yeah there's knows what point z will be yeah open relational thinkers have different views on that question the eschatological question 
Some think that God has already determined some point in the future which God will wrap everything up. Others think that uh, it's really open and God is working to wrap it up and doesn't know how it's going to happen, but it will eventually happen. Others say, you know, God even not sure it's going to eventually happen, but God's never going to give up. And because God never gives up, we have hope that everything will, you know, that love will win to use that, that character, that phrase. That's so there's different. Oh, go ahead. That was just that second way that yeah. uh, um, God doesn't know when it's going to happen, but knows that eventually it will. Um, yeah. Sounds very familiar to like my I'll fly away. Oh, glory. Like oh. <laughs> growing up in church, talking about the rapture all the time. Yes. Uh, they're like any minute now, any minute now yeah. that they're actually like that this, this way of thinking would actually put God into the same camp. He's like, yeah, any minute now. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, and, and it kept, I said, I'd be back. I said, I'd be back in just a minute. And as far as I can tell, I might be. <laughs> yeah. And it kept a lot of us from having sex before we should have had, you know, before we were supposed to, because yeah. God might come back right in the middle of you fornicating. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, why I got child married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a particular. Also, I view loved on her. This. Oh, good. That's good. <laughs> Still do. <laughs> I have a particular view on this. I call relentless love that uh, says that God never gives up inviting everyone to salvation and everything to salvation in this life and the next. And so there's the hope of the universal reconciliation. God doesn't send anybody to hell, doesn't annihilate anybody. But since God doesn't have controlling power, God can't force people into reconciliation or to love. But this God never gives up. And so... Can you... Yeah. Can you uh, make that a little bit more explicit? Like if, so what happens? I die and I, I want nothing to do with God. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm not annihilated and also God hasn't given up on me, but I, I'm just like, well, what, what does that mean? So you don't believe yeah. in hell. Right. At, all. at least not the traditional view of hell. Yeah. I mean, if hell is just the natural negative consequences that come from saying no to love, well, I believe in hell in that sense, but not like a fiery pit where, you know, you'd get thrown for eternity. I don't believe in that. So what well, would happen? You're going there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, I think of it like this. Um, suppose you're with friends and they invite you to help someone out. And you realize that in helping that other person out, you are also going to be helped. It's gonna be good for you and good for them. But you say, you know, there's gonna be a little bit of pain in this, not as much pleasure as if I do this other thing. And so you say no to helping them out, which ends up would have helped you out as well. And you reap the certain natural negative consequences that come from seeking this other pleasurable thing. The short-term uh, pleasure ends up being long-term pain. We could you know, fill out that general scenario with all kinds of specific situations in this life. I'm suggesting that continues in the next life. So whatever options you have in the afterlife, God is inviting you to do the loving thing, not only for yourself and whoever else you're affecting, and you can continue to say no to that. And saying no to love means that you just say yes to something less than love. And so those are the natural negative consequences. But unlike some theologies that says that, you know, well, God's going to give you 
3,800,000, whatever times to say yes. And then that final one, God's going to say, I've had it with you. I say God never gives up. God truly is steadfastly loving. So this is something like C.S. Lewis's view, right? Where it's like, similar. Yes, it's similar. Like the in, great divorce is that in the, the great? Yeah, yeah. There's a great in the great divorce in hell. People can have whatever they want, right? So, so what happens is people they'll move into a neighborhood, right? And then they start bickering with their neighbor. And so they just go and imagine another house somewhere else. And hell keeps spreading out. And people keep getting farther and farther away from each other because they, they can't stand to be around each other. It's like yeah. this chosen isolation and loneliness and darkness because uh, that's what they want. Well, but it's I, not torment. And it's it's they're doing it to themselves. Right. I've heard it explained um, as uh, the parable that Jesus gives about... Uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Oh, uh-huh. um, I've, I've heard that used as an example of, of this type of construction of hell, that this rich man is in hell and somehow from the bosom of Abraham, Lazarus is able to peer down there, able to see each other across this divide. And the rich man actually like says to God or an angel, I don't remember all the specifics of this super well, but says, send Lazarus with a drop of water on his finger to touch my tongue. And so the person that I, that I had read talking about this basically said, and this was proof that the rich man was still choosing to live in his constructs from earth where he is to be served yeah, by other people. Great. He still wasn't ready for heaven because yeah. he still felt like, well, I'm thirsty. Lazarus should bring me something to drink. Yeah. And he's like, all right, well, you can keep staying there then. Yeah. <laughs> you can't, if you come into heaven like that, you'll ruin it. Uh, like was yeah. kind of. The, um, yeah, I love it. Which I find, I find that to be so much more just and so much more meaningful. Like, um, I don't know how well I can articulate this now, but you know, the, the classic examples of, you know, well, what do we do with Hitler? Or what, what do we do with right. the, Maybe this would be a little too punchy but like what do we do with a donald trump someone who lives right. like a really a very hateful um life and i would just say the more conventional views of hell almost demonstrate that they were right like if, mm -hmm. if your version of hell is that you get to the end and you just get punished and punished and punished because you were on the wrong side of things and God uses his power and authority to take advantage of you now, yeah. then it, like it turns out Donald Trump was right about yeah. how the world works and who God is. He, he was right. If on the other hand, the construct of hell that we, you know, arrive at is more like, well, what happens is that you can keep being that for as long as you want. Um, the only way that you'll ever cross over or whatever, the only way that you'll ever experience the true is to admit that that wasn't right. Because yeah. God's not going to stoop to your level. God will let you live at that level as long as you want to. Um, but eventually, I've always just, I find that way more compelling to say like, well, that's what true repentance, like, you know, not, not someone being punished in the same way they punish people in this life, but someone yeah. realizing that what they did in this life was wrong. And I think you're admit that. Yeah, both of those illustrations, the Lazarus and the Trump uh, uh, or Hitler, 
both of them push us also to talk about the real relationality between creatures. You know, oftentimes in relational theology, we talk about God being relational. That's really important. But there's also a fundamental relationality amongst creatures and such that if you are going to live well, you're not just going to you're not going to be isolated. You're going to be able to relate with one another in a kind of giving and receiving, a serving others and allowing others to serve you. It's, mm -hmm. It goes both ways there. Um, and that's a beautiful world uh, picture, I think, of an afterlife of uh, eternal bliss. Who is it that's got that analogy of the banquet in which uh, you've got one arm behind your back and you can only feed the person next to you and the people who are uh, selfish, they try to feed themselves and they can't do it. But if they feed the person next to them and the person next to them feeds them, like everything the forks are really long or something. Yeah, it's is something that, like, yeah, yeah. I've heard I, that before, but I can't think of. Yeah, who, I don't know who, who came it. up with it. Maybe it is the long fork and not a hand behind the back. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you have, this is a kind of shifting gears a little bit. There's, there's a word that you use in, in this book, Open and Relational Theology. Um, I'm not sure if you just made it up for this one or if I, I don't remember seeing it in your earlier work, but you know, in the conventional God, um, we talk about being omnipotent, all powerful. Um, and you say, well, God, you know, there's stuff God can't do. Uh, and so I, I like kind of, pushed you a little bit on this the last time you were on the podcast. Like, well, is your God impotent then? Is your God unable to do stuff? And um, so I like to think that that you were responding to me when you said yes, in this it was book, all you. It was all you. <laughs> the name is on the book, Joe. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> um, so in this book, you use the word amipotent, if, if I'm saying that correctly. Tell us that... To me, that's a game changer. Like that, I love that word. I'm going to use it now all the time. To, uh, tell us what that means. Yeah, well, I made it up for this book, and I'm going to give you all the credit. I appreciate but... <laughs> that. I deserve it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know the correct way to say it. I've been saying it omnipotent, but omnipotent. I don't know if that's okay. correct or not, because I guess since I made it up, I can say the correct way. Can't I? <laughs> so yeah, because so many people hear the hear me talk about God's power, and realize that I'm not affirming a conventional view of divine omnipotence, they think the only alternative is a do-nothing God, a God who sits on Mars eating popcorn, saying, you know, good luck to you all. I'm going to watch from a distance. And um, since I think God is always loving and always influential at all places, all times, all people, all creatures, everywhere, God is the strongest, most influential, but I think God's power is always shaped by love. And so that's why I wanted to come up with a word that had love at the beginning and power at the end. So ami is the Latin prefix for love. We get words like amigo or amity or amicable from that word. And then potent is, you know, power, potency. So omnipotence is the power of love. Drew has a band called Amity. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, cool. I do. Ours is from Jaws, though. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I did read the book Jaws last week. Uh, are you familiar? Like, I had I no know the idea. movies, but I didn't read the book. Yeah, well, it's the same in the, in the movies, but oh, is it? Okay. Amity is remember. the name of the town. 
Oh, and so it go. comes up over and over and over. And every time I'm seeing it, I'm like, that's so weird that I didn't know that. I was a big fan of the Jaws movie. I just didn't remember it. But yeah. last week at the beach, I was It's a good Jaws. place to read Jaws. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I even said at one point, at one point, uh, somebody like kid kicked a soccer ball out too far out into the ocean or something and kid by the and, way is an adult <laughs> i was just gonna go call his brother kid but yeah it was actually my brother who kid who who kicked it out um and i had been reading it on the beach and uh, i was like i'm not gonna get that i don't know if this is a good book but it is effective <laughs> that was my that's, my that's my amazon review of jaws the book is like i love it good but it's effective <laughs> so you're, this this book that we've been talking about, Open and Relational Theology, it's an introduction to, you know, there are a lot of people, um, yourself, Greg Boyd, John Sanders, uh, John Cobb, Catherine Keller, a lot of people who, who are like, who would fall under this umbrella. Right. Um, but this is a really introductory text. I'm curious, what do you, Tom, think of, this is probably our last question, I know we're running out of time. What do you think of as your unique contribution to this conversation? Maybe not in this book because it's introductory, but in general, what do you think of as like, what's the Tom Ward contribution? Yeah. Well, I do get into it a little bit in the last chapter in this book. Um, for me, the issues of love are most important. What I care about most is living a life of love. Most mornings I wake up, I do a kind of a breathing prayer where I symbolically breathe in God and then symbolically breathe out love. Um, I want to be a loving person in all dimensions of my life. And open relational theology, at least from my perspective, and I think a lot of other people would agree, open relational theology presents a coherent and consistent view of a God of love and a coherent and consistent view of how we might be loving creatures. And so looking at it kind of from the grand perspective, uh, someone who sees love as central to their life, to the world and to God ought to be attracted to open and relational theology as a theoretical framework to make sense of those deep intuitions about love. I've written other books on love and kind of explained this. My next book is going to be uh, another Agape, Eros, Filet, and God is the name of my next book that I'm doing. Um, and I've got some other ones. My, my wife likes to joke that every book I put out has got the word love either in the title or the subtitle. And yeah. she said, are you going to write about something else sometime? It's <laughs> wow. not a bad thing to be known wow. for, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, I will say about this and, and, um, I haven't read every book on open relational theology or open theism or any of that. Um, but I will say that this was super accessible um, and a good. really, really good place to, to start at it. Um, I think our one word review on the back cover is the best one word review of all of it's these. It's the clearest. It's clear. It this is. It's is selling clear. all the copies. Um, They're all going to your I, one word. I do think, I do think the word clear is, is, is great because anybody who's listened to this today and thought like, okay, that sounds like some big ideas and some big, they are big ideas and big subjects, but what you've done here is so incredibly brought it down to like, okay, 
anybody I think could pick up this book and, and start to consider how this might change some really problematic crises in your, in your faith. Like if you start to take your faith seriously, you start to let yourself ask some of the questions that maybe you've not asked before, you're going to hit some walls and this book will help you navigate those walls a bit. Um, yeah. I'm grateful for that. That's a, cool. that's a beautiful, beautiful um, thing to say, Drew. I, I really appreciate it. That was my goal. I wanted to be clear, succinct. You know, I didn't want to drone on and on, but I wanted people to have a clear idea of what I was trying to say. And, and see, um, sincerely, thanks to you, both of you, for your, your endorsement for that. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Just, just happy to be nominated. <laughs> well, like Tom, to thank thanks so much. Jesus Christ, my producer. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being here again. Um, we'll, we'll see uh, when the Agape book comes out, I guess. I love it. Oh, yeah. I like talking Round guy. three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thanks Sounds a lot, good. man. Preacher, is it true that God is the same no matter what? Except when he gets sad or really, really mad or says, I'll be back soon or maybe not. Preacher, the God I used to serve doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I got myself a jacket of tweed as I set my mind free with some open and relational theology. Yeah.